Welcome to Writer's Tricks of the Trade. I'm Morgan St. James. Tonight, authors Dennis N. Griffin, Eric Miller, and I will talk about why you don't have to use a character's typical behavior for their profession in order to dictate your storyline. If you introduce the unexpected, you have the opportunity to create a variety of scenarios. That is true. And as an author, it's important to consider how your character's professions relate to the story that you want to tell. If you're familiar with what these people actually do in their day-to-day lives, then you know how that can affect the progression of the story. what What do I mean? Well, you have to know your characters inside out so you can lead them where you want to go. It also helps you with your backstory. I'm going to tap into the minds of Morgan and Denny tonight and bombard them with some questions about exactly how to do that. Denny, let's start with you. Tell me what you consider to be an important decision an author has to make before hitting those computer keys like a rabid, frenzied animal. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. If an author is going to use the device of a protagonist or other character breaking the mold of what the reader expects them to do, Selection of the profession is the first step. Then you have to decide how the reader would expect them to react under a given set of circumstances. Will they respond in a way normally expected of someone trained to do what they do, or will they go over the top, maybe perform in a scared or devious manner? Each reaction is the basis for an entirely different story. Whether it's positive or negative, Remember that once the theme choice is made, the character will still be operating under the umbrella of their profession. Yeah, and Denny, I want to add something here. If they act totally outrageous while doing something they have to do in order to move the action in a certain direction, you have to ask yourself, is it at least partially believable? Let's say they have to do this thing for the story to stay on track or to end the story the way you want it to. Well, of course, there's a possibility it could work, but be careful about going too far afield because the farther you deviate, the greater the risk of the reader saying it's a bunch of hogwash. Maybe the profession you chose for the character actually wasn't the right one in light of how you want to drive the story. So if that's the case, it might make sense for this character to have a different profession. The reader or the movie watcher must believe what happens could actually be possible. Yeah, that's totally true. And, and I mean, just as an off-the-cuff here, like taking it, say you have a, a, a character like an accountant who becomes a superhero in some way and has <laughs> to save the day or stop the speeding train or, you know, whatever it is. If you're going to choose that character, your hero, to be an accountant, and nothing against accountants. I was an accountant for years. Um, they're great, wonderful people. Uh you have to kind of explain how to an accountant who you know, normally has a desk job and is working with numbers and is sometimes very OCD, what in their background, what made them like this superhero accountant? So choosing the profession is, is, uh, is, a, is a choice you can make that can actually propel your story because now, hey, I have a superhero accountant. Nobody's done that before. But if you're choosing to do that, you need to explain 
how and why your accountant became a superhero. But let's talk a little bit about why it's important to match reactions with the professions. Um, I mean, that's basically what I'm talking about here. I can think of even more instances when I've read a book or watched a movie and either thought, no way, that would never happen. Denny, do you have any good examples of, of what I'm talking about here? Yeah, I, I this um, this whole subject uh, is really near and dear to me because I get very uh, turned off rather easily when I see something that's, uh, you know, really way out there uh, where you start to doubt that, that something could possibly ever happen. Uh, let's, let's take uh, the TV series House. It had very high ratings and prevailed for many seasons. But look at it from a logical point of view, which I tried to do. A hospital would never keep a prescription-addicted doctor on staff who behaved like house, regardless of how good he was. My friends in the medical profession insist the hospital would be too afraid of malpractice suits. If the same was true in a book, without the talents of an actor to carry it off and make it work, the reader might lose faith in the expertise of the author. And I don't think there's much worse than when you start getting that word of mouth um, uh, out there that perhaps your work, your book, or in the case of a TV series, your your TV show, uh, plays too fast and loose with reality. And, uh, you know, that can really destroy your readership or your viewership in uh, in a relatively short order. Oh, that's all true, Denny. I mean, and, you know, even worse than they might tell their friends about how off base you are. <laughs> that's that's, that's the, the kind of word of mouth their that, friends. That, <laughs> exactly. That's the kind of word of mouth an author doesn't need. Um, let's, let's explore that a little bit. Once the reader or viewer has a doubt, are they going to lose confidence in the, you know, how likely is it that they're going to lose confidence in the entire story? Because in order for the reader to trust the author, isn't it, I mean, they have to they have to think that the author knows what they're talking about, but they'll they're not expecting things to maybe be a hundred percent accurate, but there's there's that ring of believability that that we're talking about that that has to be true. I mean, we we don't want every accountant to act like every other accountant. We don't want every cop to act like a stereotypical bad cop or good cop. What's what's your take on this, Morgan? Well, there's another factor that enters into it, Eric, because themes play a big part in the credibility of a story. And more often than not, they are related to the profession or professions of the main and supporting characters. So if you take any given situation, and despite their training, the characters all have different reasons for acting a certain way just in real life. Um, whether the story or the characters come first, you have to be sure you know what would motivate them to do what they do and how they would do it and why. And so let's say it's a given that a cop might be more compelled to aggressively enforce order than a hairstylist, but that's not always the case. Let's assume maybe he's fighting an inner rage. I mean, face it, his weapon is a gun, not a hair dryer. But then maybe the hairstylist holds a black belt in karate or he's a champion marksman. 
So it's always good to have some kind of a surprise element, and you can use the character's professions or avocations to help create it. A hairstylist with a chip on her shoulder. I, I see a whole new. Uh, <laughs> I see a whole new TV Killer series. Hairstylist live at ten. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, say you say that you know sometimes ordinary people wind up doing you know in extraordinary circumstances. That certainly can fuel the fire and the and the and the direction of your story. If you know how a character is expected to act in a given profession, then there are a variety of ways you can develop alternate themes, like we're talking about, the hairstylist with a chip on her shoulder. Uh, Denny and Morgan, I'm going to give you a story theme. Then I want, why don't don't each of you kind of use it in a different way? Same profession, same circumstances, different story. Ready? Yeah, oh, I'm I'm okay. here. I'm on for it. Okay. You up for this, Denny? I'm ready. Okay. Here's the storyline. Two thugs assault a middle-aged man as he enters an alley, and let's say they ultimately kill him. A cop, let's say, witnesses this incident. All right, now, Denny, what can you come up with off the top of your head? Oh, Okay, my cop is going to be triggered by rage after he's done what he's been trained to do as a cop. Let's say that uh, he's been on the job a few months, been through the academy. He's in a restaurant. He leaves the back door and enters an alley where he sees this assault taking place. And the assault, uh, the, the thugs who are committing the assault or using uh, perhaps weapons, perhaps knives, perhaps brass knuckles, whatever. So the the life of the uh, the victim is in danger. So the cop goes into action. He's been trained to respond quickly um, in emergency situations like this and to act to, to save a victim from uh, from being seriously injured or killed. So the adrenaline starts pumping, he jumps right into it, but despite his quick response, the incident's already gone too far and the victim dies. So this sets the tone that the cop now, because of his rage over what happened, he spins out of control and now he becomes an abusive cop. And his inability to save the victim unleashed a long-buried rage from an entirely different source years before when he found himself helpless in a threatening situation. So he turns into something that he wasn't trained to be, but circumstances took over, and uh, and that's what happened to him. Okay, so sort of like a Rambo meets like a messed-up Nicolas Cage kind of... (laughs) Okay, I, I got it. I got it. I, I, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right, Morgan, let's take the same set of circumstances. We have, uh, you know, two thugs assaulting a middle-aged man as he enters an alley and ultimately kills him, and a cop witnesses the incident. Um, tell, tell me your storyline. Mm, let me think about this for a minute. Okay. Um, 
Well, Denny's cop was triggered by rage, so my cop can't be triggered by rage, or I might have the same story. Um, let's make him triggered by fear, okay? So his training has dictated how he's supposed to act, and the situation is unfolding, but unfortunate for my cop, his fear takes over. So we'll go back to the point in Denny's story where the cop is entering the alley from the restaurant's rear door, and he sees these two burly thugs assaulting this little puny middle-aged man. And at first, like Denny's cop, his adrenaline is pumping. Man, he's got to do something about this. But the more he watches, the more fearful he becomes. And then finally, totally unlike what he's trained to do, he darts behind a dumpster. He's quaking in his boots while the man is murdered right in front of his eyes. Well, obviously, this is a traumatic thing. And, you know, he thought he was the super cop. And what does he do? He hid behind the dumpster watching the victim get killed. Not a good thing. And he's not able to face what he's done. So he, in the storyline, he begins to sink deeper and deeper into a fantasy of what he makes himself believe happened while he's trying to cover up his cowardliness with a series of lies. And whenever he made the report, when he talks to friends or relatives, he's almost like your accountant superhero. Man, he bounded out there. He tried to save them, but these two thugs were pounding on this guy. And he got hurt himself, and he's a dedicated servant of the people who tried to save the man. And he's gotten pretty good at spinning this story. And so as the uh, storyline goes on, we realize that he and the thugs are the only ones who know what really happened. Who's going to come forward and tell the truth? The victim's dead. The thugs certainly aren't going to come forward and say, I beat this guy to death. And there's no way he's going to say it, but it's it's contained deep inside him. So he turns to the bottle, and the bottle becomes his solace. And as the book goes on, he sinks deeper and deeper, trying to maintain that facade when he's at work, but he's really struggling through life. Oh, wow. Those are great examples of how you know, a cop could react under different circumstances, so, or under the same circumstances, rather, um, Kind of uh, then you know I mean taking that just one step further Morgan those those thugs could come back to the cop realizing that they kind of have one over on him and basically blackmail him into you know maybe doing something far worse that uh, yeah that that would definitely drive the rest of the story um, but those are great examples one's driven by rage and the others and the other by fear and you know they could still ultimately both be compromised and you know the end of act two all is dark and how are they going to get out of this and still come around and still have a, a happy ending or a resolved ending i shouldn't say happy ending in act three yeah my okay, cop well goes then, into rehab both... and uh denny's cop goes for counseling <laughs> right right yeah your your cop doesn't um doesn't cave to the uh to the blackmail that the two thugs have over him and he admits his uh yeah no it's all it's that's all good stuff and and I think those are excellent examples of how you can take somewhat of a stereotypical character a cop 
and put them in the same situation and have two completely different reactions to that situation, which drive two completely different stories. Yeah, okay, and you know, so you as, could even as, come up, Eric, I'm sorry, but you yeah. could even come up with one more, you know, pretty easily. Let's say the cop is a real cocky guy, and he actually did what he was supposed to do, and then he gets so totally mm. immersed in his hero heroism that he becomes insufferable. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> that just occurred to me while we were talking. Yeah. No, see, yeah, no, this is great stuff. I, I hope all of our listeners are, are kind of have their heads spinning, too, um, with with potential uh, ideas. Okay, so, well, as you both pointed out, the protagonist in each of your stories was trained for his profession. All right, so we got that. But the themes of what he should have done versus what he did or didn't do and failed resulted in a less than perfect ending in both your scenarios. Okay, so now let me cast you as the director. And each of the diverse scenarios is believable. Add, let's go back a little bit and add a couple of new emotions. You've kind of already done that, Morgan. And, you know, spin even more stories. Because the interesting thing is you could give the protagonist a different name and a different motivation, place your story in a different location, and give the book a new title, but it's still the same prompt with a different fresh manuscript. Yeah, actually, you know, Eric, I think that's why sometimes we think we've read a book or seen a movie or watched a TV show, when in reality we haven't, because there are just so many plots, and it depends on how the plot is, you know, spun by the writer. And... um so many of the TV shows, books, whatever, are actually a, a new spin on something that we did read or see, and that's why it seems familiar. And I've got a funny little anecdote here that I'd like to um, share with you. Uh, I remember years ago, my cousin by marriage, uh, Norm Prescott, was one of the owners of Filmation Studios, which kind of owned uh, Saturday morning kids' TV along with Hanna-Barbera. And I was visiting him at his office one day, and he was sitting with some of his writers, and they were trying to come up with an idea for a show. And it wasn't going anywhere. So finally Norm said to the writers, hey, dig up the scripts for, and he named about five shows that had been produced and aired over the last year. He said, see which one flies. If you just spin it a different way, that's where we get our script today. So, yeah, I, I mean, that was it. True. Another funny thing uh, is if... No, go ahead. <laughs> We're stepping on each other's toes, and it's my fault. <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah, I was going to say another funny thing is sometimes if you look in your TV listings, you'll see two or three programs with exactly the same storyline airing at different times, on in different programs, but they all have the same storyline. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. The um, you know here in Las Vegas, um, we have the uh, Utah the Shakespeare Festival every every summer up in Utah, and you know Shakespeare has been around now for what four hundred years, <laughs> and you know his plays. There's still whole summer theater dedicated to his works and you know i i 
I know some English professors that that do whole uh, presentations on Shakespeare on you know network TV because they can basically take every story um, or or cast the characters on any long running popular TV show and draw pretty convincing parallels to some of Shakespeare's most famous works. You know, I mean, so that, you know, you just change the profession but give them the same motivation. And that's, uh, I think that happens in Hollywood a lot. (laughs) Well, you know what? It actually happened in England, too, because one time when I was in England, I went to Stratford-on-Avon. And, of course, when you go to Stratford-on-Avon, what do you do? You go to see a Shakespearean play. And they were um, having Macbeth, which I thought, oh, well, you know, that's going to be good. And it was set in modern times, and the hero was a motorcycle gang guy. And, I mean, this just really blew my mind, because here I'm sitting in ancient Stratford-on-Avon watching this play, and it's all about a motorcycle gang, but the storyline is the same storyline. Oh, James James Dean is Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they they changed the whole thing around into modern times, and cool. I think the audience was a little shocked because I don't think it was what they expected. It certainly wasn't what I expected, but I have to say I did enjoy the play. Well, I'm I'm hoping people are going to enjoy my new series. It's about a hairstylist with a chip on her shoulder. And, uh, <laughs> and she substitutes a gun for her blow dryer. <laughs> exactly, but she's got this Romeo and Juliet thing going on. Where... That's right. Uh, you know, okay, I, well, I, I couldn't help but think when, uh, when Morgan was talking about we sometimes uh, – think we've uh, we've read a book or seen a movie or so forth uh, when actually it it's it's a, a spin on a, something we had seen or heard in the past reminded me of Yogi Berra's famous comment there about deja vu all over again yeah and it, i i got to take this moment if i can to vent a little bit um, vent Denny. <laughs> i i shall vent uh, i I'm interested uh, in in crime stories on TV. I, I like uh, movies or series about. I, I say I like them. I'm interested in them. I don't always like them. Um, <laughs> now the difference, my wife and I. My wife isn't as, what should I say, picky as I am about accuracy. And she, in some cases, she just doesn't know, what a, what procedure should be followed in a certain situation. And so for entertainment value, she enjoys some of the shows that I find myself unable to watch. And if if we're in the same room and the particular show is on, I might open a book and start reading, and she's all engrossed, and she can't understand why it is that I'm tuning out of this, what she considers to be a great uh, entertainment uh, story. And it's because, as we were talking about earlier, it's so far... Uh, out there as far as a lack of accuracy that I can't get into the story because it it, it just defies credulity and I, I can't do it. Um, and I'm not going to name each show, but there are a number of them out there that, and I'm 
I think have potential, but whether it's poor research, whether the writers don't do um, due diligence when they're when they're writing the scripts and so forth, I, I don't know. But when you have um, uh, a situation where the a cop will or a detective will search or go into an apartment, say, when, when the occupant isn't there as a suspect and he finds he or she finds evidence. And um, now I know that if they haven't obtained a warrant and they basically commit a burglary, they're actually uh, violating the law themselves, <laughs> and they find this evidence, well, that's, that that's fine. I, I in fact I, I could appreciate and I could warm up to a character perhaps that, you know, in his interest to get justice, he's willing to bend the rules. Okay. But you've got to say that. You gotta make it clear that this cop knows when they're doing it that what they find in there can't be used. They can use it themselves as a lead for something else, but they're not gonna be able to take this evidence because it was obtained illegally and they can't go to court with it. So, but uh, the shows that really antagonize me is where they, they the cop commits a burglary to, to gather evidence, and the next scene, the DA is congratulating the cop on what a great job he or she did and how they can't wait to get in court for a slam-dunk case. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. Any defense attorney or, you know, they're going to want to know how they came about this evidence, and once it's found it was obtained illegally, it's out the window, and the cop is probably going to be disciplined if not charged criminally. So uh, those types of things really infuriate me because I I think that if they acknowledged that the cop committed a no-no, but he did it for the right reason, he did it because this was the only way he could gather certain evidence, uh, I think the viewers would appreciate that. The cop could still be a hero, even though tainted to some degree. Um, but I, I could appreciate, but when they gloss over it and pretend that what the cop did was actually going to result in a positive outcome, that just boggles my mind. So I tune those types of shows out. I just can't watch them. My wife thinks they're the greatest things on television. So I guess <laughs> it, it's all in the eye of the beholder. Well, yeah, no, showbiz, kid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. It was making me think. Um, uh, are you familiar with that show, The Mentalist? It, they they kind of work around that a little bit because here they have you know these L.A. police detectives, and they're working with this guy who is just a consultant to the police force, and he often doesn't follow the rules and 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 or or strict police procedure and he gets disciplined all the time i mean that's part of the show and that's part of the in my mind the likability of the show because you kind of he's not exactly a rogue cop he's working on his own agenda but the the character patrick jane is sort of they're admitting what you're what you're saying what you're they're doing what you're what you're what you were suggesting denny and that they they are working outside of the law, and they're doing things that normal police wouldn't do, but they're acknowledging it, and they're acknowledging it with this exceptional character that may or may not have psychic abilities, and 
and he works outside of the law with them to bring the case home. I don't. How, how do you, are you familiar with that show? How do you, how do you feel about the Mentalist? Yeah, I've watched the Mentalist a couple of times. Um, the thing that's interesting about what you just said, Eric, is that it drives home the point that we were making earlier in the show, which is you can deviate from the norm, but you have to keep the believability uh, factor. Exactly. And by him admitting that he's done the wrong things, then you have your believability. And and seeing him get reprimanded. He does physically get, you know, he's, he's always suspended or, you know, he's – the chief is after him or something like that. So there are there are repercussions for his bad behavior. Um, now, Action and consequence. Right, exactly. And I think that's why the show's successful. That's why it has such a loyal following, because they are true to their audience in in that way. They're not trying to pull one over. Now, let's go back in time a little bit, Denny. What what about like a, a gritty show like Hill Street Blues? Did you did you think that that sort of followed the you know that was yes, on I, so long ago that I don't remember it I I loved oh. Hill Street Blues I yeah, loved I and a, another show that I liked uh, even though it was not a serious crime show it was a comedy was Barney Miller oh yeah. I love Barney Miller because yeah, a lot of the good. characters in there I met Guys who were very similar in uh, in in their uh, their attitudes and their you know how they talked and how they thought to some of the characters on Barney Miller. So um, I really enjoyed that. And to me, you know, although it was a comedy, it wasn't supposed to be serious. It 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 did reflect uh, a lot of what you would hear around around a squad room or a police station um, situation. So I I really enjoyed that. And I thought for a, for a comedy show, they were were very good. And Hill Street Blues, I used to just love watching that. Yeah, well, Brandon well, you know Carter, you brought in actual police officers and had them on script as as writers and, and co-producers to get that authenticity. Um, but that's a great example. Barney Miller is an excellent example, Denny, of, of taking a, you know, what you think, you know, a police department, and sort of turning it on its head a little bit. And, you know, instead of being a gritty crime drama where you're seeing people's chests get exploded by, you know, <laughs> dumb, dumb bullets, it was a comedy, but it still did deal with some pretty um, realistic things, much like MASH. MASH dealt with, you know, some real, real issues about war and the nature of war and and all in a, you know... I don't know, maybe it wasn't funny to everybody, but, you know, they took doctors and they gave them flaws. They were hero surgeons, but they were also raging alcoholics. Yeah. And it worked (laughs) for how how many seasons did MASH run? I mean, it worked. It's like, okay, we're going to make a show about a a medical unit in the Korean War. What the hell is that going to be about? Oh, (laughs) right. It's going to run for 15 (laughs) seasons and win, you know, a thousand Emmys. Who saw that coming? <laughs> well, you know what? I think that, Eric, you and Denny have made some great examples of what the whole topic of our show is today, is using things in different ways. Now, if you took the same scenario and you gave it to the writers who were doing The Mentalist, 
the ones who were doing Hill Street Blues and the ones who were doing Barney Miller, you'd wind up with three entirely different shows on the same theme. Right. Right. Okay, well, all right, we're starting to run out of time here. Let's let's uh let's sum it up for our listeners here. Um so we pretty much agree try to avoid having your character do something so unrealistic relative to their profession that you've given them that it causes the viewer or reader um, to doubt that it could ever happen or that that character would ever do that, right? We're in agreement on that. We all know that writers have a certain amount of creative license. That's why some of us like to sit behind our keypads for hours on a day. So it's okay for things not to be 100% accurate, but totally believe unbelievable situations just don't fly. So you really got to put yourself in the shoes. If you're going to write about the, a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, you got to put yourself in their shoes. And So believability is an essential element that allows the reader to trust the author. Um Okay, so that with that, let's then figure out how this unusual behavior that we've given for our character in this profession can drive a story down multiple different roads like we're talking about. So we're all in agreement on that, right? Mm-hmm, right. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right, well, I'm happy to say that Writer's Tricks of the Trade is now presented by Writers of Southern Nevada, and we have a new website where you can find a full directory of links to our previous podcasts and links to our future shows. So the website, visit HTTP, you know, familiar HTTP colon slash slash writers tricks of the trade radio dot blogspot dot com. Okay, and if anybody wants to find out more about um, the Writers of Southern Nevada, their website is nevadawriters.org. Morgan, where can people find out more about you? Well, I'll tell you, I have so many websites, I've forgotten how to keep track of some (laughs) of them. So (laughs) the best one to go to is my personal website, which is www.morgan.org. St. James altogether dash author dot com and there is a uh, page that says blogs and then you can find the links to a lot of my other ones that I take care of. And that's that's St. James abbreviated so it's S-T. Right, it's M-O-R-G-A-N S-T-J-A-M-E-S Right, I'm not a real saint. Well, so you of course, say, sometimes so I am a sinner, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Denny, what about you? Give us your website. Gladly. It's www.dennisngriffin.biz. That's B-I-Z. Okay. And my website is venisdude.com. I'm in the midst of changing over to ericjamesmiller.com, but I still have my old com website where um, when I was living in Venice Beach for 12 years and writing. Okay, our next show is June 10th, and it's going to address 
the perennial question, are you stuck in a writer's rut? Okay, so whether you write fiction or nonfiction, habit can be one of a writer's worst enemies or best friend. Denny and Morgan are going to share tips for expanding your thinking and your writing on June 10th, so be sure to join us. And remember to check out Writer's Tricks of the Trade radio.blogspot.com. And Writers of Southern Nevada at nevadawriters.org. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess we'll say goodnight to everyone now, and thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you around the corner. Absolutely. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs>